you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Today's expert from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, the co-chair of emergency medicine at Cedars, Dr. Sam Torbati. Dr. Torbati, welcome back. Thank you so much, Larry. Good morning to you and your audience. Great to have you back with us. Uh, last night in his State of the Union address, President Biden uh, said that uh, there is going to be a, a wide-ranging uh, strategy against COVID-19 and a shift in the strategy that is soon to be laid out. What, if anything, do we know about what that's going to entail? Well, there's a big shift. Um, you know, uh, one of the... Uh, biggest shift is sort of a test-to-treat initiative where um, the administration is going to be paying for tests and medications to be provided at pharmacies. Um, that's that's really drastic, and, and I think it's going to take a lot of work, but how nice will it be for patients who, who come in with symptoms if they do test positive to be able to consult with a pharmacist, get one of the antiviral vaccine, I'm sorry, antiviral oral pills and get to go home with it. Um, there's a improved COVID-19 tracking discussion, universal vaccine being looked at, um, uh, looking at prioritization for immunocompromised Americans, looking at hospital capacity expansion, and working with FEMA. Research on long COVID-19, uh, I think that's a big priority because a lot of patients end up having prolonged symptoms and we're not sure what to do uh, with the patients to help them the most. So the strategy seems to have, have shifted, um, but I think the biggest uh, impact might be the the very initial one in terms of how do we manage someone who, who becomes infected. And, and let me just ask you about how people should react to this. So if if and when antiviral pills become available at the pharmacy, let's say a person tests positive but doesn't have any symptoms of COVID-19, should that individual take the antiviral pills after testing positive, or should they wait and see if they have any symptoms before doing so? It's a great question, and um, the antiviral pills are are only um, recommended for patients who are at higher risk to develop severe disease. So patients that are older, patients that have some of the traditional risk factors such as chronic disease, obes obesity, diabetes, 
those are patients where starting early actually makes the biggest difference. And with these antiviral medications, they need to be started much earlier. They need to be started within five days so that they can have the nearly 90% success rate in reducing development of severe disease. Patients who are young and healthy, they won't even qualify for it. They won't really need this. They just need to isolate and take some you know, Motrin and Tylenol and drink fluids, and they'll get better. Okay. But for people who are in a riskier state because of the reasons you mentioned, even if they don't have symptoms, if they test positive, they ideally should, should take the antiviral. For sure, and and that that applies now. Uh, if uh, you know these antiviral pills are available, Paxlovid in particular is incredibly effective in preventing disease progression. And uh, although the availability is a little patchy, we're seeing more and more availability in Los Angeles in particular. Um, the pharmacies now have more access to it. So if there is somebody who tests positive and they are at risk for developing severe disease based on age or underlying medical conditions, the earlier they start on these medications, the better. I've heard patients say, well, I think I'm going to wait to see if I feel worse. Well, by the time you wait, if you start feeling worse, we lost the window. These are therapies that prevent disease progression. Is there any downside or significant side effect from Paxlovid or other antivirals? Well, that's the rub, um, Larry. The Paxlovid can have um, drug-drug interactions. And so pharmacies and prescribing physicians who are familiar with the medication need to do a, a thorough review of the medication list. And so if patients are taking certain medications that interact with the Paxlovid, those medications may need to be adjusted in dosing or discontinued for the period of time that the patient is taking Paxlovid. But all of those protocols and pathways have been worked out. We know exactly what to do. And if uh, there are patients who are at risk for developing severe disease, uh, I, I strongly recommend that they have a conversation with their physician about it. And it sounds like in the next month, under this, uh, this plan, the test-to-treat plan, that pharmacies will have a bigger role in those consultations to the point where patients may not even need to go see their doctor. They go to the pharmacy, they get the test. If they test positive, uh, the pharmacists can do that consultation, review their medications, give them counsel, give them the drug for free, and they get to go home. It's a lot of work, and it's and it's uh, really wonderful to see that the pharmacies are willing to do this work. Um, uh, but if if this plan can can work out, this could be actually quite quite a good thing for patients. And could this potentially suppress the spread of um, an outbreak of COVID nineteen with people going on the antivirals? Does that make them less infectious? We, we don't have any data to show whether um, uh, the infectiousness reduces. Uh, the main data we have with these medications is that when, when patients that are at higher risk for disease progression take them, it reduces the disease from getting severe enough to require hospitalization or, or death by 90%. And that's, that's the real goal. I think patients will still need to isolate um, even while they're taking these medications, but it reduces the likelihood of them developing severe disease. And ultimately, that's what we want. If, if somebody happens to 
contract COVID-19. We want to do everything we can early to prevent them from getting real sick and landing in the hospital. If you have questions for Cedars-Sinai Emergency Medicine Specialist Dr. Sam Torbati, we welcome your questions right now at 866-893-KPECC, or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. We also remind you that if you came in late, you can listen to the entire interview every day with our COVID-19 expert by uh, subscribing to the podcast COVID-19 in L.A., wherever you get your podcasts or at kpcc.org. You can also tell your smart speaker uh, to play Air Talk and COVID in L.A. That's another way for you to hear the daily podcast. But if you subscribe to it, then you just have it automatically. And, you know, you don't even have to worry about it if you miss part of the conversation. 866-893-KPCC. There have been multiple reports that Los Angeles County as soon as day after tomorrow, Friday, could remove the indoor mask mandate for everyone, regardless of vaccination status. Dr. Torbati, your your thoughts about that, and to what degree is that risky? I, I think it makes sense. Um, the uh, county leadership has done a terrific job of following the science, following the data that's coming from the CDC. The CDC has a new methodology in terms of risk assessing what a community's risk is, and they're looking at not just prevalence of, you know, COVID-19, but how much capacity there is for hospitals, what the condition of the, com- the community is in terms of underlying health issues. And uh, uh, we're very much looking forward to new data coming out on Thursday that will basically allow us to have the evidence to say that it's, that it's okay. Now, just because people are not mandated to wear masks doesn't mean that they can't. And so um, for, for people who are at higher risk for disease um, uh, severity, so if someone is older, if someone's on medications, their immune system is weak, you know, that mask may be something that you need to continue wearing probably for a very, very long time, especially when they're in public settings. Uh, but for the rest of the public, especially the, the younger, healthy public, the, uh, the the masks may not may not add any additional value, and that's what the science is showing. And to what degree do the masks benefit one-way masking, so to speak? Someone who is at higher risk for complications, uh, what level of protection do they get by by wearing a mask, particularly uh, an N95 or KN95? Yeah, the you know masks uh, primarily protect the person who's wearing the mask. Um, they also, you know, provide some protection uh, against, you know, sp- spreading this respiratory virus. And so um, it really depends. The, the, the better the mask is fitted, uh, if certainly if it's a, 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 an N95 or a K95, it provides far more benefit. And so um, if, if individuals are concerned, if they're at high risk, they're older, their immune system is weak, they're on medications, that uh, suppress their immune system, wearing a, a mask that provides the optimal protection in environments where they're indoors makes sense. We're talking with Dr. Sam Torbati on AirTalk. John in Fullerton emailed us, says, I'm immunocompromised. I received Evasheld last month. Will that promote B and T cell immunity similar to vaccines or, or COVID infection? Dr. Torbati, can Evasheld do that? 
Great question. Um, I uh, that's that's not the the uh, methodology for Evisheld's uh, sort of uh, protection. Evisheld basically is external antibodies. Um, we're not aware of that building any any specific B or T cell response, but what it does is it gives um, several months of protection as if you had received a vaccine, and it's very important for individuals who whose body um, or medications or disease states prevent them from mounting an adequate antibody response. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, John is receiving it. And for the rest of the audience, um, if, if you are a cancer patient receiving chemo, your immune system is very weak, this therapy is an important therapy to discuss with your physician. It's become much more available as well to, to provide to patients who qualify for it. President Biden also announcing last night that there will be another round of free at-home COVID-19 tests that will be available next week. Uh, So we'll update you on that when that's actually available for you to get uh, a couple more COVID-19 tests for your household. And uh, with that in mind, Dr. Torbati, when again, when when should people use rapid antigen tests? Well, these tests are wonderful. I mean, they have really helped so much. Um, it, it was such a delight to have access to these testing during the Omicron wave. Um, and, and basically, the tests um, may not be as accurate very early in disease within the first day or two. But as, as, uh, as people get closer to day two, three, and four, their diagnostic accuracy increases. And so if somebody is symptomatic on day one or two and they take a test and it comes back negative, I wouldn't trust it. If they're symptomatic, they should retest in a couple of days. All right. Uh, And is it still worthwhile if you're getting together with a larger group of people to test in advance of a social gathering, particularly if it's going to be indoors? Um, You know, if, if uh, if, if, if folks that are getting together are at high risk, for, um, for complications, the higher the risk, the more valuable testing becomes. And um, uh, the, uh, as long as the test is available, um, it's a wonderful tool. It's, it's not very invasive. It's a quick swab. And so many Americans are now used to doing this test that it's become second nature. So uh, I, there's, there's definitely no downside to it. The CDC estimates that 140 million Americans have been infected so far with COVID-19. Now, the reported number of cases is just over 74 million. So that's just over half with this new estimate of total cases. Does that mean that about half of the cases of COVID were asymptomatic and people didn't even know, or a significant percentage were, you know, people who just took care of themselves at home and their illness was never reported. Um, how should we think of these numbers? So this, this study was fascinating because um, it's a nationwide antibody seroprevalence survey. Basically what um, um, blood samples from routine medical checkups were basically uh, are routinely submitted from you know all 50 states and Washington D.C. and Puerto Rico, and the data continues to be followed. And what we can tell based on the blood samples is the proportion of patients in a population that have evidence of having had COVID-19, not vaccine-related antibodies, but actual COVID-19 itself. And it's based on 
that data that we're seeing numbers that basically twice as many people um, that have where we have reports of them being positive have likely been infected. And you're correct. This probably reflects the fact that a lot of people are asymptomatic. A lot of people tested at home, and a lot of the home tests, obviously, they're not reported anywhere. And um, having uh, this additional data gives us a much better picture of what's what's happened in, in the sort of in the population. And going forward, this data, I think, is really key in terms of public policy and the CDC guidance in, in helping us make wise decisions around you know, future activities. We don't know what the next COVID uh, wave is, is, is going to be like, what new variants may come around the corner. But data like this is very valuable in helping to make the right decisions. Neil in Santa Monica wanted to ask about Paxlovid and whether that antiviral is an effective treatment for the Omicron variant. Is it, Dr. Torvati? So the, uh, the data suggests that it may be potentially a little less effective, but still quite effective. So if, uh, if anybody is at high risk for disease progression, I would definitely suggest having a conversation with your physician. And uh, the Paxlovid would be definitely something that I would consider starting early. You mentioned earlier, Dr. Torbati, that tomorrow we would be getting a kind of a reset um, for how to think about uh, cases of COVID from the CDC. And, and I was looking at w- one of the things is is considering hospital capacity versus um, the number of people sick and potentially needing treatment in the hospital. Can you explain a bit how that new metric might take over from the ones that we use now? Of course, of course. We've, we've learned so much about this disease um, in the past two years. And, you know, this disease and how it impacts our population now is obviously very different. The population has either been infected, has developed natural disease, or has received vaccines. Uh, we have different variants. And originally, we were just following new cases, and um, policy and guidance was being based on that. But with all these new factors, we now have, and the CDC now has a much more mature model in terms of um, projecting what the risk status is in a particular area in the country. And it's also far more sophisticated in its ability to make a recommendation for a region versus an entire state or an entire country. I mean, we've, we've seen this. COVID is patchy. It affects different areas differently. And so having a blanket policy of masks or, you know, whatever the blanket policy is, it just doesn't make sense. With these new models, the guidance can be very much customized. The guidance looks at the most critical issues, not just how many positive tests you have, but looking at severe disease. And that severe disease is best managed by looking at how many people land in the hospital, especially those in the ICU. If hospital capacity is there, then we can manage this disease and we're able to have policies that allow for more freedom and less restrictions. If the, if the capacity to take care of critically ill patients goes down and the hospital systems crumble, that's when we get into trouble. 
And so these, the new recommendations, the new guidance, the new methodology that the CDC is using is far more sophisticated and it really makes a lot of sense. I think it's going to take a lot of the frustration away from people who say, you know, there's no COVID in, in my entire county. Why do I have to do this? Yeah. Now the answer will be, no, you don't have to do this. It'll it, be much, 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 it'll make much more sense. It does put more onus on the individual, though, because you really have to assess, like we were talking about earlier, your degree of vulnerability to COVID-19 if you get it. So if the odds of you getting it are low, but the stakes are potentially high, um, particularly if you don't get antiviral treatment right away, then maybe you still have to take more significant precautions than someone for whom if they get COVID, it's not as big a deal. For sure. And, um, you know, patients who um, have have dealt with weak immune systems have been dealing with this for a long time. I mean, uh, somebody who's taking chemotherapy and their immune system is weak, they're not going to go around other people um, because they're afraid of not just COVID, there's other infections. Now that we understand COVID better, now that we understand risk better, now that the population has a much better understanding of the biology of this of this virus and this disease, people can make smarter choices for themselves. And I think we're getting to a point where mandates and oversight from you know city and and, and state is is going to calm down. And uh, people will need to make better choices themselves. Denise in Crenshaw Manor emailed us, uh, when masks are no longer required, does that also mean the six-foot distancing rule in public places will be relaxed? Um, I believe so. Um, I believe so because they kind of go hand in hand. If the risk in the community of uh, contracting uh, uh, COVID-19 goes down, then... um, the need for distances and such will go down. But just like masks, if somebody is at higher risk for contracting COVID and getting complications, you know, um, spending time outdoors instead of indoors may make more sense. And it may make a lot more sense to hang on to the masks for a longer period of time. Sarah in Santa Monica says, I got COVID recently. I tested negative for the first couple of days. Now that I'm positive, when should I start counting my quarantine? I'm on day 13, counting from symptoms. Day 11, counting from positive tests. The CDC says you can start counting from either day, but for me, they're two different days. Um, you know, day uh, 11 or 13, as, as long as um, you're, you're healthy and, and you didn't require hospitalization, they're both more than 10 days out. So from a standpoint of needing to um, isolate, you, you no longer need to isolate. As long as you're feeling better, um, you're pretty much okay to come, come back out into the public. Will in Pacific Palisades emailed us, the Moderna CEO recently spoke of trials for a COVID booster plus seasonal flu combo vaccine. Would that be ready as soon as the fall of this year or the fall of next year? And would that be for all ages or just say those over 55? We, we don't know. That's a great question. I mean, we're looking and hoping that we can soon get into the endemic phase of this um, illness. So um, we're hoping that COVID-19 becomes similar to influenza, where it's endemic, where you have low-level 
disease activity in the community all the time, as we see with influenza. And then there could be spikes around, you know, the winter time and cold and flu season. And if the uh, epidemiology, if the behavior of this virus evolves into that, then certainly it makes sense to manage it the same way we do influenza. And if we could combine the vaccines from with influenza and COVID, then it makes it much easier to, to get compliance, to get people to get their their annual or semi-annual boosters. But the question is, 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 is hard to predict. I mean, uh, it's... It's hard to know if another variant is going to come through and and throw us for another curve, um, and uh, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that we we can get into an endemic phase, and that could be the way we manage this disease going forward. That would be wonderful. Sure would, Doctor Torbati. Such a pleasure. Thank you for being with us, and uh, we're also so glad that you and your colleagues at uh, Cedar Sinai are getting a break with with hospitalizations for COVID continuing to decline. Such good news. It's a pleasure talking to you and your audience, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.